Welcome to the Grant Writing Simplified Podcast. This is the place to learn how to make a big impact in your community through grant writing and nonprofit consulting. The world needs you to step forward as a grant writer and use your skills to lead with confidence. I'm Teresa Huff, former special ed teacher turned grant writer and nonprofit strategist. In my 20 years of freelancing, I've helped nonprofits triple their funding and exponentially increase their reach. Now I'm stepping up to mentor freelancers and nonprofit leaders like you who are ready to take your skills to the next level. It's time to get intentional about your vision so you can create lasting change in your community. Learn the skills and strategies you need to become the grant writer the world needs. Let's do this. Hey friends, welcome to episode 25. How are you doing these days? We have had some crazy cold weather this week where I live, and I can't even imagine what it's like for my friends up north. I hope all is well with you guys. As this airs, we are about six weeks into 2021. How's the year going for you so far? Are you struggling or are you starting out strong? If you're having a hard time figuring out how to move forward, either in your nonprofit work or in your grant writing career, book a session at teresahuff.com strategy and let's get you moving. People have so much clarity after one of our strategy calls because it helps them really pinpoint how to move forward and also identify what they don't need to worry about right now. We've got a world to change and we need you out there helping, my friend. Speaking of helping, you guys, I am so excited to share today's guest with you. I'm introducing you to my new nonprofit friend and fellow podcaster, Jenny Hargrove. Jenny is a charitable marketing coach, and she's host of the podcast, The Nonprofit Jenny Show. When it comes to nonprofit marketing best practices, she knows her stuff, as you will hear today. I've been listening to her show myself for a while, so I was really excited when she agreed to come on here and share her nonprofit marketing tips with you guys. In fact, we decided to swap interviews, so I'll be on her show next week to talk grant writing. Be sure to follow me on LinkedIn so you can catch that episode when it airs. We get into so many good topics in this episode, like how to stay in touch with donors when you can't meet in person, how to make social media less overwhelming, what content should be on your nonprofit website, and so much more. This is good stuff, you guys. Let's go. Jenny, welcome to the show. It's great to have you today. Tell us a random fact about yourself. Yeah, random fact about me. I think this is super relevant for recording a podcast is I have five dogs. And so if at any point any of them start barking, I apologize. I may like just pause and wait for them to be done, but it is very hard to keep five dogs quiet while recording a podcast. (laughs) Totally fine. I was wondering how you do that with all those dogs in the background. They love that I work from home. They always want to be up in my lap, but it's funny. They range from a five pound little mini Yorkshire Terrier all the way up to a 150 pound St. Bernard. Oh my. So all of my clothes at all times are covered in hair and drool. <laughs> and I I accepted early on that I will never drink a cup of coffee that doesn't have dog hair in it again. <laughs> Just go with it. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) So if we hear in the background, we'll just assume they're cheering us on. That's exactly what it is. They are huge fans of podcasts. 
Okay. Then we'll just go with it. It's good. (laughs) So you have some amazing background in nonprofit and you're doing some really cool work now with nonprofits and with your podcast. So tell us about that. Yeah. Well, so I actually, before I became a nonprofit consultant, I was working in corporate philanthropy and I was in charge of all philanthropic activities for a national corporation in one region of the country. And I would get approached by a lot of leaders of smaller nonprofits who would ask for our support. And unfortunately, I had to keep turning them down because as a corporate operation, we wanted to make sure we were funding sustainable activities. And at the point that a lot of nonprofit leaders would come to us, we didn't have evidence that their programs and their operations were going to be sustainable in the long term. And that kind of killed me because there were so many nonprofit leaders who were doing great things who I had to turn down. And so I started doing consulting on the side to help those nonprofit leaders get to the point with their capacity and sustainability to be able to come back for that ask and get a yes. And that was much more fulfilling to me than turning people down all the time. So I became a nonprofit consultant full-time and my degree and my experience has been in strategic marketing. And so that's something that a lot of smaller nonprofits especially don't really have a good grasp of. They don't really know what it means to have a strategic marketing plan that is deeply intertwined with their development plan. And so I help nonprofit leaders with that. And another thing I started about three years ago was my podcast, The Nonprofit Jenny Show. It's the least original name ever, but I just wanted to just get it started and put something out there. I think it's great. It's easy to remember. (laughs) It's a great podcast and it's identifiable. Yeah. Yeah. So I started it at a time where there were only two or three other podcasts for nonprofit leaders. And the other podcasts that were out there were really targeted toward giant nonprofits. Like all the guests they had on were leaders of national or global nonprofits. And the advice they were giving was just not accessible to smaller nonprofits. And I also noticed that almost all of their guests were authors and experts. And I wanted to offer nonprofit leaders conversations with their peers, people who are doing the same things that they're doing and creatively kind of figuring out their own unique strategy as a smaller nonprofit that needs to be nimble. And so three years later, here we are. I've got like 90-ish episodes under my belt and have great people like you, Teresa, on the podcast. And it's just been a, a, a fun journey. I really like yours because it's so practical. Like it's something that I feel like I could just take away and immediately implement with my own clients because I work with a lot of small nonprofits. The bigger nonprofits are doing great work and that's fantastic. For sure. But I just feel really drawn to help the smaller ones that don't know how to move forward. And the grant writers that don't know where to start, don't know how to be more successful with the grants. So I'm kind of the same way. It's like, let's bring this down into manageable chunks and give them specific steps you can do today, even if you're early in your journey. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. That's the biggest compliment. That's my goal (laughs) with the podcast. So I appreciate that. 
Good. Well, I'm glad you're doing that. And that's such a good resource. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and how you're serving clients. Yeah, right now, this is, as you know, a kind of crazy time. Unfortunately, when the pandemic hit, a lot of especially leaders of small nonprofits kind of freaked out and just didn't know what the future was going to look like and started to feel uncomfortable asking for money from their donors, especially if their mission isn't directly related to COVID-19 relief. And they would have small businesses that had been sponsors for years and they felt uncomfortable approaching those small businesses again and asking for that same level of sponsorship. And honestly, a lot of what I've been doing, Teresa, is just bringing the research to my clients and to nonprofit leaders to reassure them that things are going to be okay. Like it, it will take work the same way that it always has. It will take hard work and consistent work. But studies of major donors especially have shown that about 85% of major donors are planning to increase or at least give at the same level as they did before the pandemic. 90% of donors are if they are giving to COVID-19 relief, they are giving that on top of their regular giving. And although businesses are impacted in a slightly different way because, you know, it's not a unilateral decision with their budget, there are really creative ways to get them involved. And so I've been just helping nonprofit leaders with their marketing as we move forward in this kind of new territory to let them know which best practices continue to work and how to approach each different audience of of their donors, their volunteers, their clients even to continue to to make those connections. That's very reassuring and hopefully some nonprofits are listening and understanding that because I've gotten questions about that lately too of just what are the changes but some of the ones I've worked with really their donation levels have stayed the same yeah or improved and so it's very encouraging because of all the uncertainty going on to know that people are still supporting your work and they see the value of that in the community yeah and something i tell my listeners all the time is like first of all People aren't going to know to give if you don't ask. Right. So you you do you need to continue to make that ask. But second of all, COVID-19 has not made people less passionate about the things they were already passionate about. True. Like if I'm passionate about the arts, which I am, I'm, I specifically love musical theater personally. Mm-hmm. I'm not uninterested in musical theater all of a sudden now that there's a global pandemic. Right. You know? And if anything, I'm more concerned about musical theater because I know that those people are like out of work right now because Mm -hmm. they can't have productions in the same way. Right. And you probably can't wait to get back to it when it can open back up. Oh my gosh, I miss it so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what my work has been recently has been teaching nonprofit leaders how to continue connecting with the different audiences that they've always been talking with to keep connecting with them in this kind of new world that we're living in. I think that's what they're looking for is just those reassuring answers of, should we still do this? How do we go about it? And from what I'm hearing you say, it's kind of like when you're making even a business request or appeal you need to appeal to both the emotional side and also the numbers and the data side because you have different kinds of thinkers, but you also have 
both sides to those people and the way each of us are wired, that we need to know those feelings and reassurances that everything's going to be okay. But we also need that backed up with the data and the numbers. For sure. And the way that you present that information is different or rather should be different for each of your target audiences. Yes. And that was something we're in the new year now. We just got done with Giving Tuesday and year-end giving. That was something I was working a lot with with my clients uh, around was individual donors who are not major donors. They're giving $100 or less to your Giving Tuesday or year-end campaign. Their lower amounts of giving are an indicator that they are less engaged in your mission. Obviously, it can be an indicator that they have lower capacity to give as well, but they generally know less about your mission and about your programs and services. And so certain numbers don't really resonate with them. Mm -hmm. For example, I received an email this morning from one of the organizations I support that said they were wrapping up 2020 and said, we gave 10,000 books to kids last year. Well, 10,000 is a really big number. And for me, I don't really know what that means. Like as an individual donor, does that mean you gave one book to 10,000 kids? Where are those kids? Mm-hmm. What did that impact have? One book per kid doesn't seem like it has that big of an impact. So how many books did you give? Do those kids even know how to read? Are you giving them literacy programs as well? So I need different numbers from that organization versus an organization where I've been on their board before. And I know deeply all of their services and I can recite their brochure almost by heart I know what those big numbers mean and I need to know them and I need to know year over year numbers and what impact my major gift had. That's such a good point because that's an important piece of grant writing too, is knowing, of course, we have to include a lot of research and data, Mm -hmm. but knowing how to present that most effectively to where it really drives your point home right? and not just spouting out numbers for the sake of here's the research you asked for, but really how to make that compelling. So that's a good example of how to do it outside of grant writing as well. Yes. And then your, you know, your business sponsors are going to need different types of numbers. Right. So yeah, every, every audience needs different numbers and a different type of story. Mm-hmm. And that's what I really enjoy working with nonprofit leaders on is defining their story for each audience while still having every story point back to their overall mission and impact. And you're not reinventing the wheel with each one and you're not twisting your mission. Right. You're just focusing on the needs of that audience and what they need to hear from you and how they need that presented. Right. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's interesting. So along the lines of marketing, I know you have a lot of experience in that regard. Given today's restrictions and limited in-person events and the things we're going through right now, what kind of strategy tips can you give us, especially for online marketing, and where should nonprofits focus their efforts to be the most effective? I know there it's probably a lot of my answers are it depends, but if you can <laughs> yeah, give us kind of some sure. guidance. <laughs> sure. Of course, it always depends. Something I tell all of my clients as soon as I start working with them is, is that I can give you best practices. I can give you research. I can give you templates and I will help you to figure out what works best with your audience. But before we get started working together, you know your donors and your volunteers and your clients and all your other stakeholders much better than I do. And so you know where they are and it's important to meet them where they are. Like you mentioned, things are different now. We have restrictions 
that we didn't have before March of last year in our communications. And so it is really important to go back to the basics of figuring out where your donors are. Why did they become donors in the first place? Why did your corporate sponsors decide to sponsor you in the first place? What part of your mission speaks most to them? And where are they? Do they check their personal email or their work email more frequently? Are they on Facebook? What demographic is on Facebook versus on your Instagram page? And would they appreciate a different type of communication right now? Something that I've been talking with my clients about a lot is in place of these in-person events and you know, we're, we're not able to take people out to coffee right now. We're not able to have our annual events or our volunteer appreciation events or board meetings in person. How can you make the connection continue to feel more personal? Because a lot of people are getting burnt out on Zoom meetings and stuff. And so nonprofits that have never before called their donors consistently are calling their donors more frequently like literally old school picking up the phone and calling their donors. Imagine that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, With a lot of my clients, they typically will only send an email thank you letter when someone gives a donation and they will send a handwritten note for major donors only. And I've really encouraged those nonprofit leaders to lower their threshold of who receives a physical card. And it costs a little more, but that is a way to make someone feel very personally appreciated and like a real live person noticed that they gave a donation and appreciated it. Right. That you care. Right. And it doesn't cost that much more and you never know which of your small donors are going to become bigger donors down the road. Yes. That's something I've helped a lot of my clients revamp their thank you letters also to not just be a thank you plus here's your receipt or to be on like your traditional letterhead, which feels really cold, but rather to turn their thank you letters into a postcard that has like a beautiful photo showing your mission impact on one side on the back briefly says thank you, but then also gives opportunities for you to continue your engagement. Like if you're interested in becoming a volunteer, doing some remote volunteering at home, here's a link that you can visit. If you're interested in becoming a monthly donor, here's the impact that can have. And so you're using these tools in a different way than you were before COVID-19 to make them feel more personal. And you were talking about online marketing. That's something that a lot of nonprofits have realized they really need to step up their game. And unfortunately, I've seen a lot of nonprofit leaders just kind of really flounder. They feel really overwhelmed because digital marketing for the most part is free. And so it's not like direct mail where you have to keep track of your budget and keep track of how often you're sending mail to different people. It's like, well, we could be on social media 24-7. We could be posting stuff all the time. We could be emailing stuff twice a week. And so they're really struggling to figure out the right balance. And so I've just been doing a lot of work one-on-one with nonprofit leaders to figure out the right balance for their audience And like you mentioned, when you asked me for some tips here, it does depend on your nonprofit, like how you should divvy up that time. But one thing I'll say is a lot of nonprofit leaders are underestimating the power of email right now. 
a lot of them think like, well, people are on social media more than they're on email. And that's true. But with social media, a lot of nonprofit leaders forget that they can't guarantee that a social media post is going to be seen by anyone. And like we've seen, algorithms can change overnight Mm -hmm. and there goes your visibility in an instant in your reach. Right. So yeah, it's good to have your own list built up. So at least you have control over that and can reach them as you need to. Right. Something I remind nonprofit leaders all the time is with email, with direct mail, you can send a message to every single person on your list and know that they get it. Maybe they don't open it. Um, And that's another problem. We've got to make sure you've got a compelling subject line and all of that. But you know that they get it. With social media, you can have the most compelling message ever. And it's only going to be seen by a maximum of 10 to 15% of your followers unless you put ad revenue behind it. And even with ad revenue, you don't know who is seeing that post. You can't pay for ads and then select the people on a checklist who you want to see that message. It's just like Facebook's algorithm or Instagram or Twitter, whatever. They determine who needs to see that message that you just advertised. Yes. And that's another piece that has to be very strategic in the advertising. Otherwise, you're just throwing money down a black hole. Yes. And it's not going to help you at all. So that you really need to know what you're doing before you invest in those ads in order to be at least somewhat effective. Yeah, I have an unfortunate story about that. One of the organizations that I've been working with for a long time with their marketing strategy, they decided to start Facebook ads for the first time without telling me. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise, surprise. (laughs) They provide strategic support for school administrators. And so that's a very specific audience, right? Right. And they're based in the States. So like they're targeting school principals, school district leaders, state of education departments, but they didn't know how to target their Facebook ads. And I started noticing all this new activity on their Facebook page. And I was like, what is happening? Like the Facebook page activity went up by like 20 times in one day. And I looked and all of the people who were seeing these ads were from other countries. Oh, no. Like they weren't even from the U.S. Oh, no. And they were all parents of school-aged children in other countries. And so they were confused by these advertisements that were giving calls to action related to U.S. educational policy. Mm-hmm. But in like Africa, and in South America. And so these parents were like, what? Like, what What are we supposed to do? What? 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 Like, wow. it was just very confusing. And so we had to end up doing some, not, I, won't, I don't want to say damage control, nothing bad happened, but we received a flood of Facebook inbox messages and comments that we had to respond to individually to clear up the confusion. Wow. So yeah, the, the targeting is very important. Yes. Because you want to make sure the people who need to see your message are, are the ones who are seeing it and not just anybody anywhere. Right. That's a really good example because you do, you need to focus on that and get it in front of the right people. Otherwise it's no good for anybody. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it can do more harm than good. And at the least cause confusion and a waste of time for your people having to go back and clean up some of that. Yeah. That's another thing that that client learned the hard way is 
if you are going to start advertising on social media, someone on your team needs to have the time to at least once per day check your direct messages for your social media page, check your comments, and be active and proactive in responding. And if necessary, unfortunately, there's a lot of dirt bags on social media. You need to be ready to ban people from commenting on your page and delete comments and report spam. Right. And to do it quickly before it right multiplies and really creates a mess and offends your good followers. Right. And even if it's not banning. So for example, there's a health-related organization I work with that was advertising a series of Facebook posts about best practices for how to stay safe during COVID-19 and kind of educating the public. A lot of people at that time still didn't really know how the disease spreads and we're focusing too much on sanitizing surfaces rather than masking and staying distant from people. And a lot of people were commenting on these ads spreading false information about the virus. And so I advised them, don't delete those comments. You need to respond with factual evidence so that people who are wondering the same thing silently in their head when they see that post have those resources ready to go. And, you know, obviously some of like threatening comments and stuff, those need to be deleted. But if it's literally just a question or if it's saying like, well, that's not true. We don't need to wear a mask. The virus escapes through the holes in the fabric. Then it's saying like, you're right. There are some masks that are better than others. And here's an article from the CDC or whomever about which masks are actually effective, you know? And I'm sure there's a statistic on that of how many people think it versus how many actually type their Mm -hmm. question on whatever post it is. Because I know there's a lot of posts. I think things or wonder, but I don't ever say anything. It's just I read the discussion and go on. But it would be nice to have that. At least you could weigh out all the evidence without having to hunt it down yourself. Yeah. Something else that I've heard from nonprofit leaders regarding social media posts and stuff is they'll phrase this in different ways, but essentially they want their Facebook page or Instagram or whatever to be a positive only place. And they don't want to fuel trolls or fuel, you know, online fights. And I remind them like, this isn't about your personal comfort level. You are the leader of a mission-driven organization. Part of your mission, at least for the vast majority of organizations, is education. And like it or not, social media is one of the platforms where you can really educate people. And Pew Research has done a series of studies on this issue ever since social media really became a thing. I actually took part in a research study to talk about how social media helps really actually influence people's opinions. And ever since the first research that was done in like 2012 or whatever, the impact of social media on public opinion has steadily increased. So as of last year, about 23% of Americans report that social media has changed their mind on a major social or political issue. And it is an uncomfortable spot to share information that people want to refute with like fake news stories or their personal opinions. But as a nonprofit organization, you have a special place where you have a special voice and you come from a platform of more reliability than an independent person. And 
I tell my clients, it's part of your mission and part of your responsibility to use that free platform as a way to educate the public and then to turn that education into a call to action. And along those lines, I know a lot of people get really nervous by negative reviews, whether it's online or on their website or on a Facebook or whatever platform. But if they have all these other positive reviews and one or two negative, people can read and evaluate for themselves. Like they can usually tell, was this just an angry person because of some issue that they had? Sure. Was it a rare occasion? I mean, yes, deal with that appropriately. Make sure you've done your part to handle that well. But like you were saying, don't obsess over keeping that hidden or worrying about that damaging your reputation. Part of it is how you handle it. And I think that goes with what you were saying too of just the social media right? and how you handle the negative comments or the questions that might make you uncomfortable. You can approach those with grace and kindness, whether you agree with the person or not. And people see how you respond. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the reviews. Something that I also tell nonprofit leaders is just like with any platform, I mean, traditionally, this would just be like public opinion, you know, PR with newspapers and stuff. But now we have social media as a platform as well. You have to build trust with your audience before you can change their mind about anything. So I wouldn't start a nonprofit Facebook page and come out guns blazing with like a controversial topic. I would build trust with good information and highlight you know, and this is something your nonprofit should be doing anyway, is telling stories of the positive impact of your mission. Put faces and names to that impact to show evidence that you are doing good in the community and what your mission is doing for long-term outcomes for the community. Build your positive reviews. Build positive comments with your community. Put in the work to get the followers who already believe in your mission and find your people. And let that serve as your foundation so that when there is something controversial that comes up, whatever the issue is, that you already have that trust built and people already know that you're coming from a place of compassion and a place of evidence and research. And so you do look like a reliable source. And bringing them back to your mission and why you're here instead of focusing on the problems of focusing on how can we keep working together through this to continue making an impact. Even though some crazy things may be going on, we can still do some good in the midst of it and keep moving forward. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought that up. That's another thing that donor studies have really frequently shown time and time again is you can get some donors who are like giving money out of fear. You know, if you don't donate, then like people are going to die. You'll get some donations that way, but that's scary. And Hopefully not what your mission is about. It's just like spreading fear. Not a great tactic. Yeah. If you flip it and say, if you donate this much, we can save a life. And this is how we do it. And here's like a story of a real person who we impacted for good. That is much more effective at bringing in a higher dollar amount, not only initially, but also starting long-term donor relationships. Yeah, you you want to be giving good, positive information. You just also want it to be accurate and real and responsive to the times that we're living in. I like what you said about flipping that into a positive script because I think people do want to be a part of something good and building something bigger than themselves and 
doing that through an organization they can trust to steward that wisely and to execute that mission in a way that they are accountable for and will follow through. Right. So along the lines of the strategy, you've had such great advice. Nonprofits, at least the small ones like you and I work with, are often strapped for time, strapped for cash. Right. <laughs> they may be operating with a lot of volunteer hours. How can they really focus their marketing and especially online marketing strategy? Because it can be a black hole of social media, like you were saying. So how should they really narrow down and know what to focus on strategically to make the best use of their time, their resources, and their efforts on that to have the most impact? Right. So one thing that I think it makes sense when you pull back and take a bird's eye view of it, but a lot of nonprofit leaders just have never had to think of it this way because, you know, new media is it's called new media for a reason. It's still pretty new. We're still figuring it out. But you need to have the landing spot. You need to have the bullseye already prepared before you start just putting out a ton of information online. True. So I would say you need to start with your website and make it really easy to navigate, put things where people expect them to be. People expect a donate button in the top right corner. That's just where they are. They expect to have a toolbar at the top that they can navigate around your pages. They expect to be able to find a page with volunteer opportunities, a page with your staff and board. You know, have the things that they expect where they expect them so that people who know what they're looking for can find it really easily. For people who don't know what they're looking for, your website needs to tell a story and it needs to tell a story no matter what device someone's on. So on their phone, they need to be able to see your story as they scroll down and it needs to unfold in a way that makes sense. So you can start with a headline of like, this is what our impact is. Not this is what we do, but this is what our impact is. Like we save lives, we feed children, we whatever. We have this impact. And then as they keep scrolling, you have the story unfold in a, a way that makes sense. Like, here's how we do that. Here's what you can do to support this work. Here are stories of people who have been impacted by our work. And so you need to have all of that information on your website so that you have something to point to. And a clear call to action of how they can get involved. Yes, for sure. In fact, one thing that I do with my clients is make sure that at the end of every one to three paragraphs, we have a call to action button that leads people to an action because some people will need to read your whole homepage before they understand your mission and get on board and want to help. But some people are going to be convinced after that first headline of we save lives, they're going to be like, oh, cool. What can I do? So give them something to do so that they don't have to keep scrolling and find that thing to do. You know, don't bury it down at the bottom of the page. Right. So that's where I would start. And then from there, you can build on what you already have. So a lot of nonprofit leaders feel overwhelmed by social media, by emails, because they feel like they have to write brand new stuff every week. And to some extent, that's true. Like you can't just keep saying literally the same sentence over and over again on social media. But you also can just keep going back to your mission, go back to your key values, go back to your program descriptions, go back to your volunteer descriptions and, and kind of have a pattern where you know at least once a month, we need to highlight volunteer opportunities. At least once a month, we need to have a donation ask for monthly donors. And we need to, at least once a week, share a story of a real-life person that we've helped. So you're not having to reinvent the wheel 
And then you also can have your stories feed into each other. So if you tell one story in an email newsletter, your email newsletter is probably longer than, or should be at least, longer than your social media posts are. So you can pull direct quotes from that email and turn them into social media posts and have all of that lead back to a spot on your website that makes sense so that if people want to learn more about that story or about the volunteer opportunity that you highlighted, there's a place that they can go really easily. A lot of people really want to feel like they are getting that rush, that immediate sense of accomplishment by posting something on Facebook because it takes a lot less time than, you know, reorganizing your website or whatever. But if we're talking about prioritizing time, it's more important to have a place where people can find all the information that they need to find about your organization and how they can support you than it is to put out that one social media post. Given typical practices, and I know for myself, if I see a Facebook post, I'm going to go to the website to learn more about it before I buy, before I do anything, before I work with that person. Their website is where I'm going to research. And that's where I get a feel for them an impression of them. And if that's not put together, I'm not going to go forward with anything from there. So I agree that is an important thing and that your social media really should send people back to your website. Right. And then your email is your main hub for communicating that you can rely on that consistency. Right. Yeah. Going back to prioritizing your time, something that I see a lot of nonprofit leaders do is they know that social media is very relevant right now. And so they prioritize social media over email communications. And I think it should be reversed because with email, like we talked about before, you know that your email is getting sent to every single person on your list. And the people who sign up for your email updates are people who showed interest in you. Like they had to sign up for your email list. There was a value exchange there. Yeah. So you know that they already support your mission to some extent. And so that's like a, we would call in sales, a warm lead. Like those people are already at least somewhat bought into your mission. And through email, you can continue to build that relationship in a consistent way where every time you send a message, you know that they receive it. Then you just have to make the subject line something enticing that they want to click on. And you can continue that relationship and keep educating them about your mission. Whereas with social media, you have no idea who is seeing your posts and how often. And so with social media, that's a great place for you to educate about your mission and have a place if people are looking up causes like yours or hashtags that you're using or whatever, they will find your social media and get to know the heart behind your mission. They'll then decide from your social media if they want to take the next step. Like what you said, go to your website or sign up for your email list or do whatever your call to action is on social media. So it's important to recognize social media is is how you get people to start to get on board with your mission. But email is where you actually have the relationships blossom and where you can give calls to action that are actually like donate consider putting us in your estate plan. You know, like the really big calls to action, whereas on social media, the average donation is something like 
20 to $50, depending on your organization. And those are people who are probably first time donors and don't really know about your machine yet. I'm just picturing a Facebook post of someone saying, write us into your estate plan. <laughs> and if it's a person seeing you for the yeah. first time, that's not going to go over well. Yeah. They're not going to follow yeah. you because of that. But if you have nurtured that relationship, been telling your story all along through email, you have like a foundation, you have that trust built. Yes, you have the credibility to right. make that ask. Right. Social media is good for discoverability. Right. But then the email is good for that credibility and the relationship building. Yeah. And one thing that a lot of the nonprofit leaders I work with, when they are hosting online donation campaigns, it could be like through Classy or through their CRM or whatever, but they're doing like a Giving Tuesday campaign online, they post a ton of messages on social media talking about that giving campaign. And I have to remind them, like, again, you don't know who's going to see this. It's probably someone who's still kind of learning about your mission for the first time. So if you want that message to actually reach the people you want it to reach, you need to one-on-one <laughs> reach out to your board members, reach out to your major donors, to your volunteers who are already bought in send them the direct link to that Facebook post or to that Instagram post and ask them to reshare it on their page so that they're reaching their personal network and they can add a comment and say like, this is why this mission personally means something to me. Someone you already care about and trust. Will you please give to help us with our goal? And it makes it even better if you can have them say, I already donated this much. So would you please give of your own money as well to support this mission? That's a good idea. And then that's how then you get their friends and family to give. And then now you've got their email address and you can add them into your email system. And then you start building those relationships with them. But if you're just posting about your Giving Tuesday campaign on social media and you don't ask anyone one-on-one to, to share that, you have no idea if anyone's even seeing that. And you'll probably be disappointed with the results. Yes. That is such good advice. And I know a lot of nonprofits have recently gone through that. So it's mm -hmm. probably very timely to hear that and start planning ahead for next year and how they can prepare in advance for some of those things. Yeah. And I will also say, guys, uh, like Giving Tuesday, it's kind of overwhelming for people, especially if they you know, follow lots of nonprofits. So you don't have to wait till Giving Tuesday. Do an online campaign in June or something when there's less people competing for attention, you can apply these same principles. Sure. Why not? But Teresa, if you don't mind, I did want to mention I have a free social media cheat sheet for nonprofits who are feeling overwhelmed. Oh, good. Yes. Tell us about that. Yeah. So it includes just basic facts and statistics, not in an overwhelming way, statistics that are like you implement practical steps to make your social media more effective. It gives kind of a baseline of like, this is how many times you should post on each of these different platforms. Here's how you should use hashtags. Here's the etiquette for tagging people. Here are the types of posts that you should be posting. And you can get that for free if you go to tinyurl.com slash nonprofit Jenny. And my name is spelled J-E-N-N-I. That sounds fantastic. It's like a cute little sheet that you can either just download and look at it real quick, or a lot of people will print it and put it up on their bulletin board in their office just as kind of a way to refer back to it whenever they're posting on social media. I think that would be really handy 
for whoever is doing your social to have. And I, I like what you said about having it organized by types of posts, because that way it makes it not so overwhelming. Mm -hmm. If you know that, okay, this week we need to have a volunteer spotlight post. This week we need to have an impact post where we show a picture of our work in action. So that helps kind of reduce the overwhelm and where do we start? And you end up just sending out random things. Right. That also helps your people, followers like routine, and they come to see that and know that predictability and start to recognize. And they may resonate with a certain type of post and really look forward to that each time too. So I think that consistency helps in a lot of ways. Right. And also being consistent with, you know, some nonprofits I'll see kind of, they'll randomly have all of these random hashtags that hashtag fun Friday is not helpful for your nonprofit. It's just not like there's 5 billion searchable. (laughs) Yeah. Like 5 billion other posts are going to come up if you, if you hashtag that and it doesn't really have anything to do with your mission. And so you want to use hashtags that are strategic and you want to use the same ones each time for the most part, because then if someone is searching a hashtag, they see that your organization comes up like once a week with that same hashtag for something that they're looking for. Right. You'll rank higher in the search results. Right. But then also like you want to be consistent with having a call to action at the end of each of your social media posts. And that does not mean ask for money with every social media post. That is not a good look. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, But it does mean saying like, go to this link for more information. Contact this person if you have questions. Please share this video. Sign up for your email list. Yes. And do you have a recommendation of those neutral or free call to actions versus asking for money? What's a good ratio for that? You know, the ratio used to be that you have three posts in between each ask for something from someone. So like you give three calls to action that help the people who are reading. So, you know, it gives them an educational resource or whatever. And then you have one call to action that asks them to do something for you. So sign up for our email list, give a donation That used to be the statistic that I give people, but they took that to mean, a lot of people started to take that to mean you can post three things and then the fourth post, you can ask for money every time. It's not a good look. It shows your regular followers, like it makes them question, like, why are they always asking for money? Like, are they not financially sound? Like, why do they keep needing $5 from me? What is that? It might seem a little desperate. Yeah. It looks odd. Like it, it just looks like something is wrong beneath the surface. So instead, I say to have soft asks in between your hard asks for money. So a soft ask is like sign up for our email list. It's look at our volunteer list. It's sign up to go to this event that we're hosting. And so I wouldn't say to ask for money every four posts, but you can ask for something every four posts. A little more of a commitment of some type and you're developing that relationship and engagement, which goes back to the whole purpose for all of this is to build that trust between you and the supporters. Right. Wow. This has been such good information. I'm going to listen back and take a lot of notes. This has been great. And one thing I also wanted to really highlight, a lot of my listeners are interested in grant writing, but they don't know where to start. And they just can't make that connection of their background to being a grant writer. But most of the people I talk to 
I can see immediately like, wow, you have this background in management and this and this, you would be perfect to transition. They don't realize their skills. So I just wanted to point out what you had said in the beginning of your background was in marketing and business from that perspective, but you made this really cool transition into nonprofit work and nonprofit consulting. And I can tell just from a lot of these strategies you've shared, those are a lot of really good business practices and best principles, and you stay up on the research. So I just want to encourage my listeners who are considering grant writing, you probably have more skills than you realize, and it would probably be a closer step then you realize. Totally agree. Even though it's scary, it's totally doable. Yeah. Yeah. And if you are a leader of a nonprofit and you've been working with that nonprofit or at least in that mission for however long, like you're an expert in that field and you can tell that story. You are a storyteller and grant writing is just storytelling with a focus and storytelling with evidence to back up those stories, you know, with evidence and a purpose. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you aren't exploring grant writing in some way in your nonprofit, that's a huge missed opportunity. And so that's something that I don't work personally in grant writing. I do work in, in strategic planning of, of a development plan and a cohesive marketing plan. And grant writing, I always recommend to be part of that. And Teresa is a great resource for that. And I hope that you guys are, are going to check out her episodes on my podcast, The Nonprofit Jenny Show, because she shares such great practical information about how to get started with grant writing. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. And same here. Yeah. And check out Jenny's other podcast episodes too, because she does share such great stuff there. So thank you so much for all this great input and wisdom and all these tips today. I really appreciated it and love chatting with you. Yeah. We'll have to do it again sometime. Yeah. Thank you so much, Teresa. I appreciate it. Hey friend, after listening to today's episode, if you are ready for some guidance and support in your nonprofit work, then book a call today at teresahuff.com strategy, and let's get you moving forward faster. We can do this. If you love this show and you learn something new about being the type of grant writer the world needs so you can create a ripple in your community, please go leave me a review over on Apple Podcasts today. Thanks for listening. Now go change your world.